Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We've got such a special episode lined up today. In the new book, Shattered Glass, Kelly Stanley of Nasty Woman Press brought together essays from so many remarkable women, and she's brought two of them here with her today. From 1993 to 2017, Barbara Boxer represented California in the United States Senate, where she was a hero for women's rights. Valerie Plame, served as an undercover agent in the CIA, protecting our national interests until she was outed by senior members of the Bush administration. All three of these remarkable women joined me for a very spirited discussion. Enjoy. My Social Security payroll contribution will go up, as will Donald's, assuming he can't figure out how to get out of it. Uh, but what we want to do is to replenish the Social Such a Security nasty Trust woman. Fund. Not just sexist, because we are way past that. We are talking about sexual, predatory-type uh, behavior from Donald Trump. I worked on behalf of the national security of our country, on behalf of the people of the United States, until my name and true affiliation were exposed in the national media on July 14th, 2003. When I turn on the television, I don't know if it's 2015 or 1950. Well, I got news for you, Donald Trump. Women have had it with guys like you. I'm Barbara Boxer. I'm hoping to make a citizen's arrest of Donald Trump for endangering American lives. Sorry, but not sorry. Hi, I'm Valerie Plame, and I helped protect America's national security by preventing nuclear annihilation with the CIA. Sorry, not sorry. My name is Kelly Stanley, and I fight for human and civil rights through writing and publishing books that matter. Sorry, not sorry. So, Kelly, I want to start with you. Tell me a little bit about Nasty Woman Press. How did you start? What is your mission? How did you come up with the name? On November 9th, which was one of the worst days of my life and probably one of the worst days of, of all of our lives, I looked around and I saw my friends unable to come to grasp with what had happened, you know, what had happened to our country. And I had this idea and it just came to me that we're going to obviously need to resist. We're going to need to commit resources, time and our life's blood and energy into really fighting what I knew was going to be a fascistic regime. I knew that during Trump's primary run because he was using Hitler's playbook then and I knew that it was only going to get worse. So I thought sometimes the easiest thing to do for people is resisting within a way that they're already accustomed to. In other words, when you're asked to do something that's extraordinary, that's out of your wheelhouse, it can be uncomfortable for people. Some people can't march. Some people can't go door to door. Some people can't text or telephone. But what if you can resist by doing what you normally do? If you are an actress, you can resist through acting. If you're a writer, you resist through writing. If you're a reader, you resist through the act of actually reading. And so it came to me, this idea for creative resistance, of trying to engage other writers that I know, friends like Valerie, Senator Boxer and I share a wonderful agent, Kimberly Cameron, and the senator agreed to participate. 
people that I know, like Jackie Winsphere, who's a top-notch mystery writer, Anne Lamott, the people in our book were contacts and friends that I said, look, let's get together and do something. First of all, let's make an anthology so that we have as wide a range of material as possible and reach as many people as possible. And we're going to have a few goals. Number one, we want to give people hope who are in places that they're not going to feel hope. Like if you're in a blue island in a red state, you may feel very isolated. But a book and reading that book can give you hope. It can make you feel know that you're not alone and therefore encourage you to keep resisting, to keep fighting, because that's what we're going to need to do, because it's been a long four years. Second point is we wanted every anthology that we do, and of course, this is our first one, to raise money for what is sure to be an endangered nonprofit. The one we chose first, presciently, was Planned Parenthood. Because, again, seeing the writing on the wall, unfortunately, Senator Boxer's Freedom of Choice Act was not signed into law, which meant that it was open season on women's right to choose as soon as Trump got into power. So I thought this is a good place to start. Let's build the book and have it tie into a theme. And that theme, then, is related to the nonprofit we're raising money for. So, for example, this book, Shattering Glass, our first, the theme is female empowerment. And we are obviously raising money through every sale of this book because everything has been donated. So everything's going to Planned Parenthood, both domestic and international. And Planned Parenthood is that cause we wanted to associate with female empowerment. The second book that we do will probably be on immigration and it will more than likely go to the ACLU. So that's what we see as our mission. The name Nasty Woman Press came about because I was thinking about Hillary (laughs) that day. And I really wanted to use the singular, nasty woman, because I wanted everyone to think about their inner nasty woman. The men who (laughs) work with this as well, you know, it's symbolic. It's the nasty woman that we want to be, as well as the nasty woman that unfortunately did not get into the White House. It's such a great timestamp as well. That name, Nasty Woman Press, like you know exactly what point in history this is unfolding in, which I think is really, really cool. And our secondary tagline is the creative resistance. And also storytelling is such a great tool, especially in these days. I mean, Valerie, you start your essay in the book with the sentence, there is a war on women in the United States of America. That sentence is so powerful. And you've been right at the center of that war. Can you tell (laughs) us a little bit about what the phrase war on women means to you? Sure. Thank you, Alyssa. And first of all, I am so honored to be part of this company of just such kick-ass women, each in your own respective fields. A war on women. This has been a long time coming, but it really crystallized, I would say, November 2016. But we all felt it. We saw it. Enough already. The Women's March in January 2017 that brought hundreds of thousands of women to the mall. I love the signs that said, I did this in 1968 and I have to do this again. change has been far too slow. The only perhaps a silver lining in the Trump administration has been truly the awakening of what Kelly was talking about, a sense of resistance, of creativity. I've got to come off the sidelines and do whatever we can. And Senator Boxer, of course, is already legendary service for our country. I served with the CIA and that's why I ran for Congress again. For nearly 20 years, Valerie Plame worked under cover of darkness, serving her country as a covert CIA agent. 
But in 2003, that cover was blown by members of the Bush administration in retaliation for her husband, former Ambassador Joe Wilson's editorial that questioned the evidence of weapons of mass destruction used to justify the Iraq war. I wanted to use my voice in particular for women at this, what I think, extremely vulnerable time in our history. And Senator Boxer, you left office at the same time Trump took office. Yeah, I did. So do you kind of wish you were still there or do you think it was the perfect time to get out? I would imagine that looking back, there must be some frustration of how things have been handled. Oh, God, I'm crazed about what's happening. No, I am so glad I'm not there. And I want to explain why. I'm someone that likes to get things done. All of you know me. And I do want to correct the record because in a way, we want to make sure people know that my Freedom of Choice Act never passed the Senate. We believe it is discriminatory to single out a procedure that only women can utilize and say to the women of this nation, oh, by the way, yes, this is a legal procedure, but you can't use your own private funds. Of course, Barack Obama would have signed it if it got to his right. desk. But because we have what we have with the Republican Party, that now has changed dramatically since I started out. But bottom line is, I'm the type of person that likes to get things done. And I would just be going crazy right now. I'm not getting anything done. So let me tell you why. What I did when I left, I had a sleepy little pack, a political action committee. I woke it up. I chair the pack. I volunteer. I don't take a penny of salary. I put together a team of about four people to help me. Three women, one man. The woman who really heads it with me is Rose Kapolczynski, who was my campaign manager for the four times I won statewide. And what we've been doing, and it's been so great because I can spend time doing it, is helping these incredible Democratic candidates for the United States Senate, who I think are going to take back the Senate and get rid of the self-described Grim Reaper I think we're going to do it too. Only 300 plus bills are sitting at his desk. Everything from national security that Valerie, of course, would support, that Kelly would support that deal with women's equality, gun laws, climate, you name the issue. Nancy Pelosi's got it through and Mitch McConnell buries it. What's so strange about it is uh, the uh, leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, whom you acknowledged earlier, he... Um, he yes, he, I did acknowledge him. He, <laughs> He has said that he is the Grim Reaper. Imagine describing yourself as a legislator, as the Grim Reaper, that everything we send over there will die in the Senate. And then in the next breath, he says, all they do is impeach. Well, we've sent him scores of bills. So the quicker answer to your very important question is, no, I'm not sorry I left. I'm using this time to still make a difference. And I'm thrilled. I'm doing some other things, too. I do a lot of television. So I'm out there doing what I do best, which is causing trouble. <laughs> <laughs> the good trouble, the good kind. Well, all of us try to do. That's right. Well, Kelly, when you interviewed Senator Boxer for the book, you asked Senator Boxer about her favorite nasty woman in history, and she answered Rosa Parks. And I wonder who your favorite nasty woman is. Oh, wow. That's a difficult question because there are so many. And you wonder whether it should be an archetypal nasty woman like Jezebel or Eve, you know, because women have been demonized for so long. 
in the Judeo-Christian tradition. I mean, by background, academically, I'm a classicist, so my mind goes to ancient history. But if I had to pick just one nasty woman from America, I would pick Sojourner Truth because of her personal story, because of her personal bravery, because of her eloquence, because her words, Ain't I a Woman, resonate in the same way that Shylock's words do in The Merchant of Venice in Shakespeare. So she speaks to me very deeply. I think I would have to pick her. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing women in America today? I mean, it's a lot, I know. And can you pick just one that is the pressing issue that you feel will tumble it all down, everything that we've fought for? I want to make the point that shouldn't be lost, that we have mentioned African-American women when we're looking at the most extraordinary women. And I think it's worth a moment, given Black Lives Matter and what we're seeing. You know, I realized through my whole career, people would ask me, who are your heroes? You know, who are your heroes? And I realized as I looked around my office, I had a photo of Jackie Robinson because I grew up six blocks from Ebbetsfield. And my dad, when I was 10, said, honey, he's the greatest player and people are going to spit on him and they're going to say terrible things. And you have to cheer your little girl heart out. Mm. The point is, and then, of course, as you know, Rosa Parks is who I talk about. And I had problems finding anyone other than African-Americans to name. And it's before this whole Black Lives Matter. So when we think about nasty women, which is another way of saying uppity women, we have to take it back to the times, and we have at least one good historian here, where any time a Black person did anything, they were called uppity. That was the common usage of the word. So I think as women, as we fight for equality, we go back to the suffragette movement, which is so undervalued, and the suffering that went along with being a suffragette, including being force-fed, there was conflict between the African-American women and the white women. There was a part of the suffragette movement that welcomed the Black women in and part that did not. So they had to have their own battle. I think what's critical today as we talk about what women want is, I want unity. I want unity across every color line, every age, everything that differentiates us. Because I think once we are truly together and treat each other as equals, we're going to change the world. And we see that in the Black Lives Matter protests. The beautiful diversity that we see there is the reason why we're reaching the suburbs, is the reason why we're reaching people in the NFL and others. When I think of American history, I think of our Black leaders. These are the leaders that we celebrate. Well, that's unusual because I got to tell you, in my history classes, 
growing up in public education, we didn't hear about that many people of color and their contributions and achievements. That came later on my own reading and my own understanding, but it was all about Betsy Ross or Abraham Lincoln. And I would just add that if you ask, you know, nasty women a prototype, we all must acknowledge that we really are standing on the shoulders of all those who've come before. Suffragettes, Eleanor Roosevelt, all the way up to Alice today. Alice Paul. Yeah. Yes, so many. And as my campaign was coming down the home stretch, it was all I could do to sort of sit still. But at night, I did watch, I think it was a Hulu documentary called Hillary. And I don't want to put her out there as a one and only. There are millions of us. But that documentary, and I saw it with my 20-year-old daughter, was so powerful. And we both cried. And here's why. At the end, my daughter put it succinctly. She said, Mom, trailblazers don't always get to cross the finish line. Yeah. And we have to acknowledge what they have done. And there's so many. That was just a recent one that I saw that I harken back into. You know, it reminds me of being an activist. So much of it is about planting the seeds and being okay with not being around to see the finish line. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to be okay to plant the seeds, no matter how long it takes to cultivate it to see it come into fruition may not be in your lifetime. And we have to sort of be okay with that. This is what Michelle Obama says all the time. She's like, I'm just passing the baton. Next. Right. It's such a long struggle. First of all, I want to say, Valerie, I lost my first time out. And the only reason I tried again, and it was way back, probably before anyone was born, but it was in 1972, I lost. And then I won four years later. And then I won 11 straight times. Now, why did I have the courage to go the second time? It wasn't something within me. I read an article in Ms. Magazine. And the article, it just shows you how, as you say, the written word is so critical, what you read. So I read there that they were analyzing why women give up after they lose once. They said, women tend to take it too personally. Your ideas are a little ahead of the curve. Do not give up. And they went through Richard Nixon, who lost like four times, Lincoln, who lost like six times. And they said, don't give up. So I said, all right, I'm going to try it one more time. But the day that we marched in the year of the woman, quote unquote, that was 1992, where Carol Mosley, Braun, Diane Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, and Patty Murray, we got right. elected to the Senate. They called it the year of the woman. We tripled our numbers in the Senate. We went from two to six. And everyone got a ladies room finally. Well, that's a whole other story. But they called it the year of the woman and there were only six women. And the country said, and this gets to Melissa's point about how long it takes. The country said, okay, we did that. We did that. It's over. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. slowly more women came on slowly. You know, it seemed like a big deal in 1992 when we went from having two women in the Senate to having five women in the Senate. In the wake of the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings, specifically by seeing how Anita Hill was treated by an all-male judiciary committee, women across the country were just outraged. And part of the way that that expressed itself was in so many of them running for office. I ran against a guy who said the year of the woman was a fabrication by the press. (laughs) But I think if I look at The Me Too movement, I think that was another push forward. So it is long and it's slow. Alyssa is right. The worst thing to do is think of this as, well, I may not see the fruits of my labor, but guess what? That's what it's about. It's the long push. 
And you guys are such amazing fighters. I mean, there's not a better fighter, and there never was in the Senate, than you, Senator. We miss you very much. I married the right guy named Boxer. (laughs) And that's why your book title is so appropriate, The Art of Tough, because you embody that. And Valerie, you have been through so much, and you are so resilient, and you have that pick myself up, get up, and keep fighting, and you are going to win next time. I was an undercover CIA operative. My assignment was preventing rogue states and terrorists from getting nuclear weapons. You name a hotspot, I lived it. Senator Boxer, I want to ask you, what do you think is Mitch McConnell's biggest failure? (laughs) One, not having a heart. Two, not having a soul. And we go from there. Look, I spent so many years in the Senate, 24 years all with Mitch McConnell in the Senate. We had an interesting relationship. And the reason I'll spend a minute telling you about it, it goes to your question. As soon as I arrived, I arrived on the heels of Anita Hill. Without Anita Hill, talk about incredible women. I wouldn't have gotten elected. That's a fact. I would love to think it was my winning personality, but people looked at the Senate and they said, there's no women there. Oh, we'll vote for her. So I got there. So the bottom line is, as soon as I get elected, The Bob Packwood story hits. Oh, right. The senator had sexually harassed and attacked 21 women. Every case is different, but change the names, and you might think this report from KATU-TV in Portland, Oregon, was from today. Julie Williamson was a young staff assistant to Packwood. He came up behind me and kissed me on the neck. I was startled by that finished the phone conversation, hung up the phone and turned and said to him, don't you ever do that again. This piece aired in November 1992 and was among numerous on-the-record accusations against former Senator Bob Packwood, a moderate Republican from Oregon. The Washington Post withheld the story till after the election because they didn't want to weigh in, blah, blah, blah. So he gets elected, he's there, and now I just got there because of Anita Hill. So I go to Barbara Mikulski, my mentor, and I say, Barbara, I got to take on this issue of Packwood. And she said, well, don't worry. It's in the ethics committee and I'm on the ethics committee. Well, to make a long story short, and I do write about in my book, nothing was happening. So I had to gin up all that's outside stuff. And I went toe to toe with McConnell and he was the chair of the ethics committee. And he came up to me, honestly, my right hand to God. And he said to me on the floor, if you continue to do this, he said, Oh, he sent Mikulski to tell me, if I continue to do all this troublemaking against Packwood, then he's going to go after Ted Kennedy and Tom Daschle. So, of course, I was born in Brooklyn. You don't threaten me. So I said to her, well, tell him, forget it. So he comes up to me and he says to me, you know what I'm going to do. And I said, is that a threat or a promise? He says, that's a promise. She was warned. She was given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted. And I walked away, turned on my heel, and doubled down. So he and I did not literally talk. Honestly, I didn't talk to him. Oh, my God. Who threatens people? So all I would say is, morning, hello, whatever. That was it. Just before I left, we did a big issue together dealing with infrastructure. It was a big success because we put aside all that stuff. Having said all that, he really doesn't have a heart. And he really has destroyed the institution of the Senate. 
And I'm someone that supported the filibuster because I was so afraid we'd lose every right we had, including the Bill of Rights, if we didn't have a supermajority. But I've now changed. I can't take it. He is the graveyard guy. And so what do I think of him? I think he's horrific. I think he needs to be beaten. And at the minimum, we don't want him to be the majority leader. We're going to have to, if we do win, we're going to have to change the filibuster rules and finally get something done. We'll turn more into a parliamentary system where the parties will have more power. But that's pretty much how I see it. He is a disaster. It's so crazy to me that these guys, it's like they studied how to be a villain. They're so identifiable as the bad guys. And you look and you go, like, Senator Cruz. It's just about power. It's not ideology. I mean, Trump has no ideology other than himself. But are they acting? No, they are proceeding upon the path which they think will accrue to them the most power and control. End of story. They don't want to give up the power. They can't stand the fact that Nancy Pelosi has as much power or more than they do. And that she's passed 350 bills and they're sitting at the desk and they make America better. And it's the last thing they want to do until they see they're losing their way. And the polls show Trump in big trouble. I don't believe in these polls anymore, but we do know that it's not going well for Trump right now because people are dying, falling over dead from coronavirus. And he can't even think to say one word. And people are getting disgusted with it because it's their grandma and grandpa. And now we're seeing maybe some of the rank and file. But I'll close your question about Mitch this way. He really doesn't have a heart and it is about power and it is about retaining power. And he'll do anything to retain that power and help his wealthy donors. Valerie's right. It's not ideological. It's about power and money and greed and all of those things. That's what it really is about. If it was ideology, it would be a more fair fight. Let's fight about that. You're pro-choice. Right. Actual issues. If they don't care, they'll go from one end to the other. But I do think this election, I don't want to overstate it, but in my lifetime, there have been many of great import. But I cannot see anything coming close to this because there is no more Republican Party that I grew up with. And I have to tell you, to me, the bigger story other than Mitch is the fact that they all, except for maybe Mitt Romney or maybe Lisa Murkowski now and then, maybe. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, not often. There's no one there to take him on, take Trump on, take Mitch on. And that to me is the biggest story. Remember, you've got a majority of Republicans sitting in the United States Senate. They could go take Nancy's bill off the desk on gun laws, take her bill off the desk on civil rights, on human rights, on climate. They could go to the desk and literally say, I'm going to stand up against Mitch. Let's have a vote. And they won't do it. So the biggest story to me isn't so much Mitch. It's the people in that party that have followed him. And it's what makes it so dangerous. So how do we fix it? Election. (laughs) Save the date. November 3rd, save the country. So... I think because it isn't about issues and it isn't ideology and it isn't... If I can add as a recently defeated candidate for elected office, too much money in the system. Of course, we've heard about Citizens United, but there is so much dark money sloshing around that it is completely undemocratic. We like to think that votes matter. And I've done my share of get out the vote and encourage it, of course. But I have to say, with the Citizens United up against this, I'm sorry, my voice isn't quite as loud as any given corporation right? So it completely distorts our elections from local, state, 
all the way up to federal. And until we mutually, both sides, come to grips with that and make some significant changes, not to mention rollback, Citizens United, I don't see how it's fixable, just elections alone. And you're absolutely right. And I've supported every bill, public financing, all the way through forever. So agree. But we can't spend time lamenting that because it's not going to happen for now and for a while. Yeah, true. More people who will support it. We're coming to the end of what might be called the anti-democracy decade. It began January 21st, 2010, with the Supreme Court's shameful decision in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, opening the floodgates to big money in politics with the absurd claim that the First Amendment protects corporate speech. It ends with Donald Trump in the White House, filling his administration with corporate shills and inviting foreign powers to interfere in American elections. When I say to Alyssa's question, it's all about the election, I can't say that enough. It's all about the election. I mean, if you had the right people in the Senate, they could do something about Citizens United. They could make Roe v. Wade the law of the land. They can start to really impact climate. So what I worry about sometimes is people make it more complicated than it is. And I'll go to every march if I can't go personally because of COVID and I have to stay home. I do it virtually. But the bottom line is we got to get to the polls. And I hope it doesn't sound too simple, but I think that's where the remedy lies at the moment. Once we've changed things, then you still keep fighting because nothing's going to get done unless we fight for it. And just so much damage has been done. So much damage. Yes. And remember, it's not only election, Alyssa, at the national level. It's the state. It's the local. It's Absolutely. The Board of Education, as Valerie pointed out, her education didn't include the truth. So this is where it's at. But I'm forever the optimist. I take the long view. But in this moment in time, we have to take every bit of our anger, every bit of our fear, every bit of our frustration, every bit of our hope and love, everything, and then mix it with that and get that done on November 3rd. And for people who say, oh, Biden isn't perfect. No, he's not. And this is what I say, and then I'm going to jump off. And this is my words of wisdom to everybody within the sound of your voice and hopefully mine, which is the following. No candidate is perfect except for you. If you run for office, you will be very happy because the person running is you. And even people close to you will find imperfections. My kids always disagree with me on things. Nobody's perfect. So we cannot get stuck in that like we did in 2016 where, well, she said that in 1991 that I don't agree with. But the point is, where are we now? We got to take people imperfections and all. And also a candidate that's willing to evolve. What I have seen from the Biden campaign and his outreach to try to unify the party, to try to grow, to try to understand how he needs to do better. He's really proven to me that he has evolved. And if you live a life of public service, 
there's going to be a lot of history for people to criticize, right? It's not like he's Barack Obama who is only out there for four-year senator or whatever. This guy has been around for a long time. He has seen a lot. He has made some mistakes. But what I see of him right now is someone that is rolling up his sleeves and getting involved in organizations, listening to the activists, really trying to bridge the two sides of the party. I think he's doing a very good job with that. He's a humble person with a heart. You know, I keep saying this is the last thing I'll say. I was in the cloakroom, which is for your listeners' edification. It's where you go when you're in the middle of a series of votes. You go to the cloakroom. And I've been in the cloakroom where I have seen Joe Biden, when we served together, literally put his arm around a colleague who was sick with cancer or had a child diagnosed with some terrible situation and really give them all the support and love and caring. And then unbeknownst to any of us, I would later learn, let's say it was a spouse or it was a child, he would actually go see that person, see that person through. Joe has suffered mightily, so many losses, Mm -hmm. so deep. And I just was talking to Associated Press, they're doing a profile. And the point I wanted to make was, what Joe recognized at his time of deepest grief, which is he was 29 years old, and he was elected to the Senate, and just before he was sworn in, he lost his wife and daughter in an automobile accident and had two boys who were very badly hurt. And he really was going to quit. He wasn't going to go forward. And several people came up to him, his family members, his new colleagues, and they showed him that he needed to have the strength to go on. And I think Joe learned early on then at 29 years old, what a difference people can make in other people's lives. And so I think that this moment has met Joe. Look at all the pain and the suffering, whether it's racial disparities and police brutality and COVID and healthcare and losing jobs. I mean, what do we need now? We do need a humble person. Yes, made mistakes, no doubt, as we all have, myself included, a humble person with a big heart. And I'm going to work so hard. I know, I hope everyone listening to your show will do that and not focus on what they don't agree with. That doesn't help us get past this moment. No, we cannot focus on the things that we don't agree with. We can't do what we did in 2016. There is too much at stake. We can see what Trump has done to our country in less than four years. It is unimaginable that he would be in there for eight years and the damage that would be done would be catastrophic. So we got to just put that bullshit aside and work our butts off to get Joe Biden elected. And I really mean that. Valerie, I want to talk to you a little bit because you've actually seen Trump pardon Scooter Libby, who was once convicted on charges that came from outing you as a CIA officer. Scooter Libby, uh, who was, of course, uh, a part of that uh, investigation into who leaked the identity of uh, CIA agent uh, and operative Valerie Plame uh, during the George W. Bush administration. This was all uh, in re- it was all really in reference to the case that was made for the Iraq war during that time period. Uh, Scooter Libby was uh, under investigation, as were other administration officials, for the leaking of Valerie Plame's identity. Uh, he was convicted of perjury in that case. Uh, and the president announcing today, the White House announcing today, that the president is going to pardon Scooter Libby. 
he just pardoned Roger Stone. He pardoned Eddie Gallagher, who is a war criminal, right? So do you think that presidential pardon authority is too broad? Well, starting with Trump's pardon of Scooter Libby, I was asked, you know, what do you think of that? And it seems pretty clear to me that Trump has really no idea who Scooter Libby is. He was told to do this. And it was really to send a message to his cronies that, listen, you take care of me, I'll take care of you. And that was exactly, of course, what happened with Roger Stone as well. Look, this president has just run a bus through every sort of precedent. I guess there's typical protocols that one goes through for presidential pardons. It should be thoroughly vetted by the Justice Department and so forth. But with the advent of this administration and how thoroughly and deeply corrupt it is and how the disdain that Trump gives for silly things like rule of law, there is a big question of whether he will attempt to literally pardon himself in advance for any previous or future missteps Does it allow that? The Constitution's a little unclear, but what we have realized with Trump is a lot of things are not actual law. They are through tradition, through precedent, through both parties sort of minding their P's and Q's. Take, for instance, most presidential candidates have released their financial records. There's no law against it or for it. And so Trump's like, no, screw you. I'm not going to do it. And this is one of so many others. We all say to ourselves from January 2017, oh, he's not going to do that. And yet he does. We're somehow continually, collectively surprised at how he just barrels through. I mean, we all knew he would be a bad president, right? You know, I have to say in 2016, I give a pass to some of those folks that are not politically savvy, but they're, you know, in the upper Midwest and typically would vote Democratic and they felt abandoned. And they said, you know, this guy, Trump, he's on TV and he's the only one talking about my jobs going to Mexico. So I kind of give a pass to some of those folks, but for everyone else who are sentient beings, no. We knew then what we know now, and now it's just demonstrated. And it's horrific because on top of everything else and the rights and women that are being trampled upon that we talked about, My background, of course, is nuclear proliferation. So the fact that our current law allows just one person, the president, to make that call, should they choose to launch our nuclear arsenal. Classified information about a nuclear weapon system with with Woodward. What were you talking about when you talked about that? We have great, great weaponry. No, I'm not talking about classified. I'm talking about what we build. We're building great weaponry. Our military is stronger now than it's ever been. We spent $2.5 trillion on our military over the last three, three and a half years. And we now have new uh, rockets and missiles. And frankly, our nuclear, we have to hope to God we never have to use it. But our nuclear now is in the best shape it's been in decades. The only thing I kind of comfort myself is that he doesn't really understand it. But I don't know. He's so impetuous in his responses. So I'm concerned. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. And you have that insider knowledge that a lot of Americans don't have at the damage that could potentially be done. You mentioned women and how it seems like we're watching our rights just being rolled back. In Congress, the House passed the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women's Act, and the Senate is just refusing to take it up, in part because it made sure that people convicted of domestic violence couldn't own guns, right? So how do we get to a place where the Republicans actually side with domestic abusers over the victims? Like, how did we get here? 
And is it just that the NRA has so much power that these interest groups are able to dictate exactly how little we protect victims of domestic violence? Like, what's your take on this? I would just quickly say that, as I mentioned before, money and politics and NRA is a beautiful example of that, how it distorts. You know, 90% of Americans support stronger gun control, registration, and so forth. And the elected officials simply don't have to listen to their constituents because their seat is bought and paid for by the NRA and others. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell may profess to support women's rights, but his voting record tells a different narrative. When Mitch McConnell was up for re-election in 2014, the Kentucky senator's campaign released an ad in which his wife, Elaine Chow, defended McConnell's honor and record on women's rights. The now obviously deceptive ad claimed McConnell had co-sponsored the original Violence Against Women Act in 1991, which is true, but neglected to inform that particular version of the bill never made it to the floor. He voted against the final version in 1993 and voted against it two more times in 2012 and 2013. I think it was Senator Boxer who was talking about Kelly as well. The Republican Party, as we once knew it, does not exist anymore. It's completely subjugated itself to Trumpism. There is no intellectual core. Just as a civilian, I'm a proud Democrat, but you want to have competing ideas and a civil discourse, that that is the whole idea of democracy. And that has completely been dissipating for years, but it's accelerated under Trump for sure. And Trump and his phenomena is one thing, but what I find so horrifying in our current time is that our elected officials, Mitch McConnell or any of the others, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, (laughs) the lineup is pretty long, of elected officials have said terrible things about Trump until they need him. And so those are the ones that I feel are most to blame for where we find ourselves today because they know better and it goes against what little conscience they might have, but they're doing it simply for their own personal power. My own take on Trump and what we're seeing and how the Violence Against Women Act plays into this whole question of guns and violence and, as Valerie was describing, the bifurcation, the extremism that American politics has become. You know, moderates used to be, it's sensible to be moderate, right? But it's becoming more and more extreme. My take on that is that, number one, the Republican Party no longer exists because Tea Party replaced it. Remember when all the moderates in the Republican Party, the people who were actually willing to have an ideology and work across the aisle to get things done, were voted out in direct reaction to the fact that President Obama was president and was elected. And this affront to them, which stems from their personal or systemic racism. I mean, let's just be honest here. That is what sparked the Tea Party, and it's what I believe sparked Trump's election, pure and simple. There are economic factors, as Valerie alluded to, absolutely, but I think the motivation is racism and a reaction against President Obama. And with the installment of the Tea Party, there are no reasonable Republicans. Everything feels totally hopeless lately, but this book and fighting against authoritarianism and patriarchy has to come from a place of hope or it's just tilting windmills. So what gives each of you hope? I think one silver lining of this otherwise really bizarre and tragic time, not just in our democratic institutions, but 
course, with the pandemic, is a lot of us are doing a lot of thinking at home about what really matters, where do we want to spend our time, our energy. Life is way too short, and there's a lot of toxicity out there right now. So I do think many of us are reevaluating that. It's not like a rubber band when this is over. It's not going to snap back to be exactly where we were. By and large, I am by temperament. I am a optimistic person. It's very hard these days to feel that way sometimes. But the only thing you can do in tough times is, as Kelly was saying, you play to your strength. Whatever it is you like to do or you're given that, where is your voice, Uh, whether you write, whether you run for office, whether you are volunteering, it is being engaged in, in a sense that we are all connected. And that's how we must move forward. This is such a strange time, but I do see glimmers of hope. And I just know for myself personally, I am evaluating where do I want to spend my time and my energy. I want to curate that more carefully and more thoughtfully going forward. Valerie gives me hope. Senator Boxer gives me hope. Alyssa gives me a great deal of hope. The book that we've published, Shattering Glass and Nasty Women Press, gives me hope. And it's in the effort to keep pushing that hope forward, again, to reaching those people who may feel isolated now more than ever, right? Because we are physically isolated, so many of us. So they may be physically and politically isolated to make sure they know that, yes, there is sanity in the world. Maybe the news is only covering the stuff that's horrific and it's covering things that we cry over or we get enraged over. But there are good things that are happening from people helping people every day. Kelly, where can people get Shattering Glass? They can buy the book anywhere books are sold. We're always advocating go to an independent bookstore and order it because then your money's doing double duty. It's supporting Planned Parenthood and it's supporting a small business in your neighborhood. But you can order it through Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's available in three formats, hardcover, softcover, and Kindle. It's widely available and every single book we sell, there is going to be a substantial amount of that that's going directly to Planned Parenthood. Because as I said, our business as a nonprofit, we do every bit of work through volunteer. So we have a very low amount of money needed to keep our corporation functional because all the labor is donated. So yeah, thank you. And Donald Trump disrespects, aggressively disrespects more than half the human beings in this country. He thinks that because he has money that he can call women fat pigs and bimbos. He thinks because he is a celebrity that he can rate women's bodies from one to 10. He thinks that because he has a mouthful of Tic Tacs that he can force himself on any woman within groping distance. Well, I got news for you, Donald Trump. Women have had it with guys like you. women have really had it with guys like you. Yeah. Get this, Donald. Nasty women are tough. Nasty women are smart. And nasty women vote. Well, I've said it before, and I'll never stop saying it. When women lead... And when women support each other, the world changes. Look at the coronavirus. 
Countries led by women had much better outcomes than countries led by men. And you've just heard some of why Mitch McConnell trying to protect Bob Packwood is exactly what men in power do. And the only way to change it, the only way to break through this patriarchal bullshit is to elect women. It's pretty easy. We're more than half of the electorate is grab them by the pussy really the best we can do? No, of course it isn't. We need to lift each other up to tear the patriarchy down. And we will. Are you registered to vote? Find out now at IWillVote.com. Make sure your vote counts and then use it. We need you. And we need you now. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.